Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here. For those of you who don't know, I'm Malcolm. I was never quite a pillar of this church, but I was part of the furniture. And it's a delight to be back here with my family. Now, I've always felt a bit sorry for John the Baptist because he's sometimes simply seen as Jesus' warm-up act, the bridesmaid who's never the bride. As Lucille Clifton wrote in her poem, I'm just only a Baptist preacher, somebody bigger than me coming in blackness like a star. But he's also a significant figure in his own right. The only person in the New Testament, apart from Jesus, who gets a birth narrative and also the prophetic equivalent of a trailer in the Old Testament. A voice crying in the wilderness. (laughs) The Gospel writers, in introducing John, all quote those memorable words from Isaiah. Luke talks of John as Jesus' cousin and even as the embryonic Baptist uh, was leaping in his mother's womb when uh, an expectant Mary turns up out of the blue. So John is a lot more than a simple spear carrier in the gospel story. By the time Jesus started his ministry, John already had a considerable following. He was a prophet and in some ways pretty old school because prophets in the, old, uh, in the Bible, we have to remember, were truth-tellers, not forecasters. They were founder members of the awkward squad, often on the fringes of the cultures that they lived in, speaking truth to power or taking their communities to task for their failure to obey God or because of the dereliction of their duty to the poor, the widows and the orphans. Prophets have tended to be cast as angry miserableists, echoes of Private Fraser in Dad's Army. We're all doomed And certainly figures like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and others were uncomfortable people to have around. But on the other hand, they told their truth in inventive and attention-grabbing ways. Often, they acted out their prophecies uh, in a cross between street theater and performance art. Isaiah, for instance, walked the land barefoot and naked for three years as a sign against godlessness. Jeremiah took his worn underpants and stuck them in the cleft of a rock to rot as a metaphor for what was happening to Israel. And Ezekiel, the most inventive of all, designed a complex installation of the besieged city of Jerusalem, uh, which he gazed at, lying on one side for 390 days, eating bread from a special recipe uh, baked over a fire of human dung. The best performance artists of our day are prophets too. I'm delighted to see Bobby here this morning, uh, who's done things like bathe in chocolate custard covered in sprinkles, if I remember, and uh, wrap herself in a kind of shroud smeared with food as part of her simultaneously hilarious and harrowing truth-telling about motherhood, mental health, and more. A prophet of our time. This tradition of dramatic enactment was alive in John. His decision to live in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey wasn't simply a lifestyle choice. He was making a point. It was deliberate, echoing the Hebrew Nazarite tradition uh, of abstinence and austerity. It was a way of being countercultural. 
And like his prophetic forebears, he took no prisoners. He attacked the hypocrisy and exploitation of religious and political leaders, calling them a brood of vipers. He had a message of fairness and generosity, telling tax collectors that they should deal justly with their clients, telling anyone with two coats to give the second away, and warning soldiers not to bully or extort money. And of course, he was John the Baptist, so he baptized people. And it's probable there that John was picking up on the ancient purification rituals of Jewish traditions. He was a Jew after all. But he also seemed to be giving this a kind of twist, asking people to be immersed in the River Jordan as another piece of performance, symbolizing a change of heart, a shift in the direction of their lives. If you've ever been to what I, as an ex-brethren, would call a proper baptism, with full immersion in a tank or even in the sea, you'll know what a dramatic, almost visceral, rite or ritual it is. As the candidate is plunged into water in a kind of drowning, then only to arise newborn streaming with water, much more powerful, if you ask me, than sprinkling a few drops on somebody's forehead. John the Baptist was a man of big gestures. But the remarkable thing about him was that while he had a sense of destiny, he didn't believe in his own publicity. He was content with his position as the support act. You feel that he had a sense of grace, of humility about him. And then Jesus, when he arrived, his life took a very different shape. John, the ascetic, was someone you had to go out and seek. Jesus, on the other hand, mixed with the populace. He was gregarious, happy to eat and drink with people of any social or religious stripe. He walked and talked in the marketplace, in the synagogues, and in the fields. In fact, Jesus joked about their difference in approach. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, he said, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, some people draw from this that John was the ancient and Jesus was the modern. John was Old Testament and Jesus was new. But I'm not so sure. My instinct is that the difference in approach was much, as much about personality as it was about ideology or theology. Because the monastic, the ascetic tradition of Christianity, you know, of the Desert Fathers, say, goes back to the third century and probably before. Hermits, anchorites, um, people who tuck themselves away are expressing their faith in a way that makes sense to them. Others live out their faith or their ethic um, in their daily working lives, in marriages, partnerships, or alone, integrated in the warp and weft of the culture. See, the comparisons between John and Jesus demonstrate that there is no single formula for living a good life. We make our own accommodations with personality, background, circumstance, culture, tradition, faith, and doubt. How dull and monochrome would life be otherwise? I'm reminded of a poem by the Welshman R.S. Thomas called Two Faces. Addressing God, Thomas says, you speak to me with two voices, one thundering on the eardrum, the other one mistakable for silence. 
he asks, which side of you am I to believe? But the thing is, it's both and. Jesus, like John, was also a prophet and a performer. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in a vivid satire about privilege. And he didn't overturn the tables of the money changers in the temple in a hissy fit. It was a deliberately staged protest, a piece of theater, if you will, against corruption and exploitation. Both Jesus and John were in their own way authentic, true to themselves. That's why people were drawn to them. They may have acted things out, but they weren't pretending. What John and Jesus also shared was that they were on the edge. John was more literally, geographically even, on the rim. But Jesus, despite his apparent conviviality, was also on the fringe. They weren't prepared simply to accept the status quo. Neither of them were quantifiable or tame. Now, there's a tendency for us to anachronize the past, to tidy it up, and to make our heroes more like us. I mean, I can imagine a John the Baptist-themed menu in Hoxton somewhere offering locusts in a tempura batter with a wild honey glaze. And Jesus, too, has been emasculated, turned into a kind of simpering effigy. As R.S. Thomas says in that poem, we're too ready to domesticate the enigma. We need to remember that John the Baptist, accused King Herod of immorality, was imprisoned and beheaded. Jesus confronted the priestly caste and the Roman occupiers and was crucified. They are an inspiration to us, encouraging us to keep a watchful, critical eye on the development of our own culture and society. We should be prepared on occasion to be outsiders, prophets, yet without being separatists. For the first 300 years after Jesus' death, Christians were on the outside, an often persecuted minority, arguably one of the most damaging things that took place in the church's history was when in the fourth century, following Emperor Constantine's conversion, Christianity became the boss religion. Because when faith cozies up to establishment, when religions get their own hands on the levers of power, bad things often happen. Religious leaders get carried away with the ideas of theocracy and then faith, doctrine, obligation become issues of law accompanied by judgment and punishment, even death. And religions ape constitutional hierarchical structures. They take on the trappings of status. I mean, in the Church of England, where we are today, priests can be reverend, venerable, very reverend, right reverend, most reverend. WTF, as they say on social media. I mean, don't doubt it. The Church of England is run by an elite of which I'm afraid I'm an uncomfortable part. Yes, at its best, the church has spoken truth to power, but its relationship is cozy. We must not allow ourselves to be domesticated. John the Baptist didn't fit a mold. He wasn't mindlessly politically correct, nor was he pig-headedly countercultural. In this, he foreshadowed Jesus coming out of blackness like a star. He retained a rough-tongued critical edge. He refused 
to come inside. John the Baptist is an inspiration to all of us, even if it's just in our heads and our hearts, to keep one foot on the outside in the wilderness. We are prophets too, called to tell the truth even if it hurts. John, dressed uncomfortably, he ate weirdly, made himself unpopular, but he wouldn't be silent, and neither must we. Amen.